0: And now, Father, as we bow to look in your word, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. For only by the Holy Spirit who inspired the book can we hope to profit from the book. And our eyes often darkened by bias, often by ignorance and self-righteousness. Cannot see what you have written. So, Lord, do that miraculous work and may our hearts be touched. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said Amen. Well, John showed up. When Jesus was crucified, the only apostle that was there was the apostle John. Out of the thousands who followed Jesus, there were only 12 who were called his intimate disciples. Out of that group, there was a smaller group, the inner circle, the three. But only one of those three was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that was John. And he showed up at the crucifixion. If we attempt to build a biography of the life of the Apostle John, we we quickly learn that he had a fascinating and extraordinary relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps closer than anyone else. And as I heard a friend of mine preach on this very subject a while back, he inspired my thinking when he said that this relationship was based on trust. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, John, of course, is the author of the Gospel of John. And in this chapter, he tells a little bit about this relationship with Christ. For John trusted Jesus Christ. And we read from John's Gospel, he trusted him enough to be his Savior. John chapter 1, we heard Pat read a moment ago these excellent words from his introduction. But if you go down into chapter 1, down to verse 35, we read that the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. Now don't get confused when you read the Gospel of John, sometimes it's referring to John the Baptist. And that's what it is here. The first John is John the Baptist. You read the earlier part of the chapter, the verses before this, and that is abundantly clear. But the next day, John was there with two of his disciples, unnamed disciples. And then this obscure rabbi from Nazareth by the name of Jesus shows up. And when Jesus passes by, verse 36, John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God. Earlier, he had announced Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 37. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So in the beginning they were followers of John the Baptist. But now John turning their heads toward Christ, they become followers of Jesus Christ. In verse 40, one of them is named Andrew. And the other remains unnamed, but I'm convinced that it's John himself who does not recognize or does not mention his own name throughout the gospel. And I think this is the point, and this is the time where John trusted Jesus enough to be his Savior. I can't prove that, but at some point in time, he embraced him by faith. Going back to the early parts of chapter 1, we read in verse 10 that Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, that is, his own people, the Jews, and they did not receive him. But to as many as received him, that is, to those who believe in his name, He gives those people the right to be called the children of God. They were not born of natural descent or human decision or of a husband's will. But they are born of God. And John must have embraced the message. Now he's writing this decades after the fact. He didn't understand all of this when he first put his faith and trust in Christ. But with his own acquaintance with Jesus and his own study... He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. I've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father who is full of grace and truth. So later on in his gospel, John quotes the words of Jesus that we all know so well. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have life that never ends. He's also the one who later wrote in 1 John the things which we have seen and heard. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life, and we have beheld him, and we now proclaim his message to you. And when John ends his gospel in chapter 20, he said, my whole purpose for writing these things is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So at some point, John believed in Christ his Savior. He trusted him that much. Secondly, we see in John's biography that he trusted him enough to forsake prosperity. When you study uh, the biography of John and put all the biblical puzzle pieces together, it's a very interesting picture. John came from affluence in the time of widespread poverty. He was the son of Zebedee, born in the house of Zebedee. And Zebedee had hired servants and a thriving fishing business. And again, putting the pieces of the puzzle together, Zebedee's wife, Salome, is one of the women who helped provide from her means for the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's implied that they not only had their home on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where the fishing business took place, but they also had, apparently, a second home in Jerusalem because they lived there quite a long time. And John chapter 18 tells us that John the Apostle had a personal acquaintance with Caiaphas, the high priest, one of the most famous and powerful men of that day, so well known to him that he could walk into his home with free access. So here's the picture. John has rich parents. He's the son of a wealthy business owner, probably multiple homes that he enjoys in different places in Israel, and he's connected to the rich and famous. But after meeting Jesus, when he was a disciple of John the Baptist, he went back to the fishing business. And one day Jesus shows up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he says to John, Come after me, follow me, and I will make you, what's the rest of it? Fishers of men. And John immediately left everything to follow Jesus. That is, he he left all that he had, the wealth All the prosperity, the business that he was going to inherit. He didn't know what he was going to face. And nor do we when we embrace Christ as our Savior. He didn't perhaps understand all the ramifications of Jesus being the Son of God. But he believed enough to put his faith and trust in him as Savior. Jesus was different from everyone else. He spoke in a way that no one had ever spoke before. God was in him And John sensed that he could trust him. And he trusted him enough to leave all of the perks of a wealthy and comfortable life to follow after Jesus. You know, others have done that. One of the most famous illustrations is the cricketer from England, C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd grew up in a very wealthy home. And he was very athletic. He became one of the greatest athletes in all of the United Kingdom. His sport was cricket. He could have used that sport to gain wealth. He was, I suppose, the Michael Jordan of cricketers. I need to update that illustration because Michael hasn't been playing for a long time. But the idea is he was really good. He was already wealthy, could have been, been even more wealthy, and left it all to become a missionary in China and Africa and India. It was C.T. Studd who said, if Jesus is God and died for me, then no sacrifice I make can be too great for him. So like the Apostle John, C.T. trusted Jesus even though he didn't know all that would take place in his life. So here it is with John. He trusted Jesus enough to be a Savior. He trusted him enough to forsake all of his prosperity, and he trusted him enough to remain anonymous. You say, where do you get that? Well, it's rather interesting when you read about John's life. In the early days, he was impetuous and high-spirited and quick-tempered. Jesus gave James and John, the two brothers, the nickname Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now that sounds like a cool nickname until you understand what it really means. One time when Jesus did not gain entrance into a Samaritan village, these sons of thunder wanted to call fire down from heaven and wipe out the village. And Jesus said, you don't understand my spirit. One time, uh, John with his brother James and their mother Salome went to Jesus and said, we know that a kingdom is coming and... Salome said, uh, could John sit on your right hand and James on your left hand when you go into your kingdom? And she was seeking out special places of privileged authority in the coming kingdom. But John was right there to take it in. Which is interesting. He left so much wealth before. But even as a believer, he struggled with what he left. Now you pick up this wonderful gospel of John and what you find is that John never mentions his name anywhere in the entire book. You say, but pastor, I opened up to page one and it says the gospel according to John. Well, that's an editor's note. Nowhere does John say that he is the author. He omits his name. I've read read quite a few books and, and almost every time the author wants to be known. In fact, the author's name is often bigger than the title but not for John. John decided that if Jesus wanted him to be famous and churches for thousands of years would be named after him, that was for Jesus to decide. And if Jesus wanted John to be obscure so that his name would be forever forgotten, that was for Jesus to decide. And the real point was not what happened to John, but what happens to Jesus. For the message is about Christ, not us. And he trusted Jesus enough to remain anonymous. He wrote those words about John the Baptist, but I think they became true of John the Apostle. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. So John trusted Jesus enough to be a Savior, to forsake prosperity, to remain anonymous. And then fourthly, he trusted Jesus enough to risk his life. That's the story of Jesus showing, John showing up at the crucifixion of Jesus. Women were there, we must not forget them, and they were either more courageous than the men, which is probably true, or simply in far less danger than the men if they would show up. The remaining ten disciples were hiding in a safe place, but John shows up knowing full well that he might be killed and crucified with Jesus simply for his association, but he trusted him enough to show up. You know, it's easy to follow someone when they're popular. When they're giving wonderful speeches and they have a great following and they have the attention of the masses of the world, it's easy to get on the bandwagon of a popular leader but to risk your life for showing up for someone who's being crucified, who's been declared a criminal, with the people of power mocking him and having the ability to take you and kill you. But he trusted Jesus enough to risk his life. I heard about a missionary story recently that I find extremely fascinating. It comes from a woman who was the wife of a director in West Africa of a large world relief organization. But this woman had grown up on the mission field in the old Congo as the daughter of Covenant Church missionaries. And when she was a little girl, her parents took her to one of the local festivals that was being had in that uh, vicinity in the Congo. It was like many of the other festivals. They were commemorating some things that had taken place. Actually, this had a Christian twist to it because they were were, uh, commemorating the 100th anniversary of Christian missionaries coming to that part of the Congo. They had food and music and speeches starting at dawn, ending at dusk. But at the very end, an old man stood up and said, I have something very important to say. I'm going to be dying soon, and if I don't tell you this, the secret will die with me. There was a hush that came over the crowd. He said that when the missionaries first came to our people, we had no idea who they were, and we couldn't read the book that they were teaching from, and we had never heard of this Jesus they presented to us. So the leaders of our village got together and devised a plan to check their credibility, and this was their plan. They would poison the missionaries to see how they would die, to see if they really believed their message. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a missionary in the 1800s? I'm told that sometimes the missionaries would send over all of their goods, all of their effects in caskets instead of containers because they never planned to come back and they would be buried in those caskets. One day a little three-year-old girl got sick. Her parents did all they could. Reading the medical books, they brought along to try to revive her, but they couldn't. They prayed intensely, but nothing happened, and she died. And she was the first missionary put into a new missionary cemetery in the Congo. Sometime later, a father got sick. His illness lingered for months. He, too, died and was buried in the same cemetery. Then a mother from a third family got sick, ultimately died. And then back to the very first family that lost the girl, one of the parents got sick. And they died. And one by one, after several years, almost every one of those missionaries died. And this old man explained that when his people saw the missionaries die like they did, they believed that their message must be true. And a church was started. Think of it. These people never knew what had happened. They never knew that they were martyrs. It wasn't until 100 years later that people understood the full story. And you say, why did they do that? They trusted Jesus enough to risk their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think I've mentioned anything to you this morning that you've never heard before. You've been asked hundreds of times, have you trusted Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him as your savior? Do you trust him enough to leave these worldly goods, to remain anonymous throughout your life and even to risk your life for the cause of Christ? And I hope hundreds of times your answer has been, yes, I trust Jesus. As my Savior and Lord. But the shocking headline in John's biography is not so much that he trusted Jesus, as marvelous is that, as that is, but the shocking thing is this Jesus trusted John, he trusted John with close fellowship. Now, it's no small thing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it's really a tough thing to be called the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's mentioned several times in John's Gospel, though he never mentions his name under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's allowed to give this designation. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Or we might paraphrase it. John was Jesus' best friend best friend is someone who knows all about you and someone you can trust. But there's a great risk in being Jesus' best friend when you think about it. There's the the risk of pride. I mean, there were were three occasions when only the inner circle knew what was happening and they were with Jesus in a secret miracle. The raising of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration when Jesus became white, and in the garden when Jesus prayed. And John was there. As Jesus' best friend, John sat next to him at the Last Supper and in that reclining position would have leaned his head on the breast of Christ. And other disciples during that service said to John, Hey, ask him, ask him, who's going to betray him? And apparently they were talking, Jesus and John, with one another. Words whispered that no one else heard. I tell you, it's it's a risk to be called the best friend of Jesus that occasion of pride, or to take advantage. Have you ever taken advantage of a relationship that you have with someone who has a little bit of power? I mean, what if Jesus chose someone out of this congregation and said, I want you to be my best friend? Wow. You would not only delight in that, but you would want to tell the world about it. Jesus is my best friend. You'd probably have a t-shirt made, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. If you're ever running for an election, just remember, I'm Jesus' best friend. That'll get you a lot of votes. We take advantage in inappropriate ways, sometimes of our best friend. And the risk of messing it up? But Jesus trusted John to be his closest confidant. And even use the description, the disciple, whom Jesus loved. He also trusted John enough to write his gospel. Think of that. Jesus trusted John with his gospel. Now, there are four gospels in the New Testament. The first three are called synoptic gospels because they have a similar view. Optic is to view. And synthesis is to bring together. So it's a similar view with the first three Gospels. I mean, if you read the Gospel of Matthew and finish that and then go into the Gospel of Mark, you'll say to yourself, hey, didn't I just read this? And that's because 95% of the Gospel of Mark is word for word verbatim taken from Matthew. Arranged a little bit differently. Slightly different emphasis, but the same message. But Jesus trusted John to write this last gospel and to put together some of the things that weren't said in the first three. This reminds me a little bit of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength in that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. And I think John could say, I thank Jesus Christ my Lord, who has given me strength by his Holy Spirit to write his gospel. For he considered me faithful, and he trusted me to do it. Now, this is all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I'm kind of emphasizing the human aspect of this relationship when I say that there was so much material from John, for John to choose from that he had to do some editing In fact, he tells us in the very last verse of his gospel that I suppose the whole world could not contain all the books if they wrote all the activity of Jesus Christ. But these things I have written, I have selected and written under the direction of the Holy Spirit so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I'm showing you seven signs that prove to the historicity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Convincing arguments. John had to take the raw material that could maybe fill the world and narrow it down to less than two dozen chapters. You say he had the aid of the Holy Spirit, and that's true, but he still was involved, humanly speaking, in the work. He had to exclude many miracles, and he tells us that in John chapter 20. Many of the miracles Jesus did aren't recorded here. He had to leave out some of the parables that he told and some of the doctrines he explained. Clement of Alexander in the year 200 said, John, knowing that the bodily facts had already been made clear in the other Gospels, composed a spiritual gospel. He dealt with the facts, yes, but he wrote the spirit perspective of the gospel, urged on by the other disciples and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning, it was noticed that John's gospel was different. And I suppose from a human uh, human perspective, you could say Jesus trusted John. He needed someone who would get the story right, And he chose his best friend. John was the one. So Jesus trusted John with his close friendship. He trusted John in writing his gospel. And thirdly, he trusted John with his mother. Isn't this amazing? For Mary was at the cross when Jesus died. Crucifixion is a horrible scene. It's a horrible thing. No art can portray it accurately. No movie can depict it really. But we do know that Jesus was severely beaten almost to the point of death. He carried his cross, or at least the cross bar of the cross, on that road from the Pilate's Palace, the Praetorium, all the way out to Golgotha on that road now called the Via Della Rosa. And if the crucifixion of Jesus was typical to other crucifixions in that day, they went to Golgotha, which was not a hill. Golgotha was not a hill. It was a valley. It was like an amphitheater around it with a popular road running through it. The cross was not tall. It probably was at eye level so that those who passed by could have intimate conversations with the criminals, the victims on the cross. The soldiers would lay the cross on the ground and then put the victim on the cross, bend their elbows slightly, and then put a spike through their wrists so that it would hold. The same would be done for the other arm, and then the feet would be nailed, sometimes together, sometimes individually. And then the cross would be heaved up either by manpower or ropes and dropped into a socket, a hole With a jarring thud, and thus began the ritual of crucifixion. We often think that people died because of blood loss, but that was highly unusual. They would often hang there for days. They died of thirst and exposure, and most often of asphyxiation. You see, the the crucifixion, the person hanging on the cross, would soon feel a paralysis in his arms that would pass down into the, into the pictorial muscles of the chest. And it meant that he couldn't breathe, he couldn't catch a breath. He could breathe in but couldn't breathe out. Do you know that horrible feeling of not being able to catch a breath? Out of desperation, he would push up and that would relieve for a moment Uh, the air in his lungs and he would exhale and then maybe take a quick inhale. But there was another problem now, the excruciating pain that he would feel in his feet and hands. He couldn't maintain that position and would drop back again and the paralysis would come back. So crucifixion was a repeated process of going up, going down, trying to catch a breath, trying to alleviate the pain. And the critics laughed. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. You can't even catch a breath. You can't be God's Messiah. And I want to remind you that those who can't catch their breath often don't say many things because it's hard to talk. We have seven Words, they're called the last seven words of Jesus from the cross. They're full sentences, but very brief. Do you remember his final words? Before he said, It is finished, there were two witnesses that he spoke to. One was Mary, his mother, and he said, Behold, your son. And then he looked at John and said, Behold, Your mother. Now, I know there are all kinds of theological implications with saying that Jesus needed something, but looking at it from a human perspective, he needed to fulfill his responsibility as the oldest son to a Jewish widow. He had to care for her, and he couldn't do that because he was dying. So he trusted John to take care of his mother. And when persecution hit Jerusalem, all the apostles fled, except for John, who was caring for Mary. At some point, they probably moved to the city of Ephesus. But John stayed because Jesus wanted him to, and Jesus trusted John. Jesus trusted John with his gospel. He trusted him with his love. He trusted him with his mother. And that to me is amazing. Now again, you have heard people ask you thousands, maybe hundreds, thousands of times. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting him to lead your life and you'll even leave prosperity to follow Christ Are you willing to risk your life to trust the Lord Jesus Christ? And I hope every time someone asks you that question, you say, I trust Christ, the one who died on the cross because he loved me so much. And that's the right answer. That's a good answer. But here's the question I have for you today. Can Jesus trust you? Because it seems to me that Jesus is looking, just as God of the Old Testament is looking for people who will be faithful to him. Think of it. There are plenty of volunteers who want to follow Jesus Christ with a good and prosperous life where everything is going well. They're physically fit, financially stable. They're successful. And we need people like that. We need people who will not become arrogant and give God all the glory and use those resources for the kingdom and remain faithful to him because it's very difficult to be faithful when you have much. But who can Jesus trust with a poor job or working with a dysfunctional boss? Who can Jesus trust with poor health? Or a sick child. There are a lot of volunteers who want the good roles. But few volunteers who want the challenging roles. Caring for the oppressed and the hurting. The poor. The ones who get lost in the cracks of the crowds. Of our modern world. Oh it's easy to follow Jesus when things seem easy. But who can he trust? To follow him in the darkness. I can tell you there are plenty of Christians who want to be parents of children who get straight A's. Have straight teeth and lead a straight sexual lifestyle. Have a straight sexual orientation. But who will Jesus trust to have the wayward daughter or the prodigal son? Who can Jesus find to be faithful in the most difficult situations of life? Can he trust you? When you are asked, do you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I hope you say with all your heart, yes, I do. But when God asks us today, can Jesus trust us to be faithful? I hope we say yes. By the grace of God and his grace alone, Jesus, you can trust me. Let's pray. Father, this communion service is but a reminder of our call to discipleship. It's a reminder of the sacrifice that you made to save us. It's a reminder that everything we have belongs to you. That There's no good in us that we can rely upon to make us right with God. It's purely by your grace. But that is not an excuse for us to eliminate our own responsibility to be faithful and trustworthy and diligent with the calling that you've placed upon our lives. So while today, Lord, we thank you for the cross and its saving power, I hope there are many who say with me today, Lord, forgive us of our sin and make us faithful so that Jesus can trust us to do his work. In Jesus' name, amen.